Good morning again, and thanks for joining us at Prairie View. Now, as we close our churchy stuff sermon series today, I hope that we all have a better idea of why we do what we do and why we're not embarrassed to do the things that many may jokingly or even sarcastically refer to as churchy. We don't preach, sing, and give simply because we're bored. And we don't practice baptism and take communion just because we like religious ceremonies or just because they make us feel better about ourselves. And as we talked about last week, we don't practice leadership the way we do just because certain people like being in charge or just because it makes worldly sense to us to do it this way or just because our form of leadership happens to work somewhat decently here. We practice leadership the way we do in accordance with what we believe Scripture says, to the best of our admittedly limited abilities. We do it that way for the sake of God's glory, for the good of the church, and for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and return. But today we come to our final churchy thing, and that is church membership. In a world that is often distrustful of institutions, and sometimes rightfully so, In a world that values individual expression far more than group identity or group conformity. In a world full of people with a deep fear of commitment. Why do we practice church membership the way we do? Why should you become a member of a church? And more specifically, why would you ever want to become a member of this church? So this morning, I'd like us to think about this in a few different ways. I'd like us to think about the big ideas behind the concept of church membership and really just group identity. I'd like us to think about the scriptural precedent for church membership. Is there scriptural precedent? And I'd also like us to think about the benefits of church membership when it's practiced well. So open up to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one. And take one of those Bibles home with you if you don't have one. But let's pray before we begin. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping here with them. Father, thank you for our graduates. Thank you for guests who are here this morning. Thank you for family members who are here for the first time in a while. Thank you for new additions like Willow Bailey, uh, who just walked into the room. Thank you for her and Lauren and their family. Uh, Thank you that they're good and healthy and strong. And Father, again, thank you for Sunday, uh, the privilege that we have of gathering with your people and reading from your word and being reminded of who you are and who we are and what it is that you've done for us, the grace and the salvation that you've given. Thank you for Christ's broken body and shed blood. Without them, we would have no salvation. And so, Father, we thank you for that. All we can say in response is is thank you. And so, Father, be with us as we continue this morning. I pray this morning would be honoring to you. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with the big ideas behind the concept of church membership. Now, as many of you already know, Planet Fitness recently opened just off of Allisonville Road, where the Sears Outlet used to be. 
And by the way, I promise that I am not a paid spokesman for Planet Fitness. They probably wouldn't pay me to be a spokesman for their gym. But Planet Fitness appears to be doing pretty well. Every time I drive by, the parking lot is full. And I know several people in this church who have recently become members of that gym. And so when I've asked people about why they left their old gym to go to Planet Fitness, and when I've asked people who didn't have a gym membership before why they've started at Planet Fitness, the answer has been almost unanimous. They say that Planet Fitness is the cheapest option. Other gyms in the area just couldn't compete with the price, so it really wasn't a hard decision to become members there. Now, I'll give another example of the concept of membership. Let's say, hypothetically, you wanted to become a member of a biker gang. However, you don't own a motorcycle, and you don't ever plan to. You don't even know how to ride one, and you're not interested in learning because you think it looks too scary. You don't understand any of the biker lingo, you don't wear any of the typical biker garb, and you honestly don't like anything about biker culture. Now, do you think that biker gang would be wise to let you join? Probably not. If they let someone like you join, a non-biker, they couldn't even truly be considered a biker gang anymore. You wouldn't be an accurate representation of their group. Their credibility would be damaged. And their unique identity, the thing that makes them them, would be lost. Now, I bring up those examples for this reason. When we hear talk of church membership, we may think it's like the other memberships that we hold in this life. Memberships at the gym, the biker gang, Amazon Prime, the book club, or the homeowners association. But is membership in a church the same as membership within groups like those? It might be in some ways, but maybe not in other ways. A church is made up of those people who find their identity in something very specific, their faith in, their allegiance with, and their obedience to Jesus. And if you're a member of a church, that means a formally gathered community of believers has looked at you and said, yep, that person is one of us. That person is a Christian. That's the same thing that happens at a gym or in a biker gang, a book club, or a homeowner's association. They look at their respective members. They evaluate them, and then they say, yep, that person is one of us. They paid the monthly fee, they bought the motorcycle, they read the book, or they live in the neighborhood. And like the example of the biker gang, A local church sets and holds standards for its members. Hopefully those are inspired by Scripture and guided by the Holy Spirit and implemented by godly leaders. But those standards help establish who's a member and who isn't. And if a church didn't do that, they would lose what makes them different from anyone else around. They'd lose any sense of being distinct and set apart from the surrounding world. But again, what's the uniquely scriptural precedent for church membership? Is there one? 
Because after all, if there isn't a precedent in Scripture, then we need to be careful to not become too legalistic about it, even if it might be wise and even if it might be helpful. So let's look to Scripture, starting with the Old Testament, of course. In the Old Testament, God's people were noticeably different from the surrounding nations. God didn't just give Israel the law because he liked watching them jump through hoops. He gave them the law partially so that they would stick out from everyone around them. Israel had different moral standards, civil codes, and religious beliefs and practices from all the other people around. And if a non-Israelite hypothetically spent a day with an Israelite family, it would have become very clear very early that they were different. They were a fish out of water. Now, if a non-Israelite wanted to become a part of Israel, there were ways to do that. There are multiple examples in the Old Testament of a Gentile being welcomed into the family of God with open arms. There's the story of Rahab and Joshua when she hides the spies. There's the more famous story of Ruth and Naomi. That's part of the beauty of embracing the things that make a group unique. People notice something different about the members of that family, or in our case, that church. And they're surprisingly attracted to it. And many people may even find themselves longing to be a part of it. But now let's look at the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 18, verse 15, the passage that we opened up to. Jesus says there, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, at first glance, you may wonder, what exactly does Matthew 18 have to do with church membership? Because we usually only read this passage when there's some personal conflict between two believers that needs to be resolved, or when we need some scriptural justification for calling a fellow believer out on sin. But what makes this passage relevant to our conversation today is Jesus' use of the word church. Believe it or not, that is a word that Jesus simply didn't use very much. In this passage, Jesus is laying the groundwork for what the Apostle Paul would write about in much more detail later in the New Testament. He's laying the groundwork for a community of believers with a discernible structure. The word church can also be translated the called out ones. The called out ones. Pastor Mark Dever defines a church as a covenanted community of believers. Tim Keller refers to a church as an organized organism. 
A church is a living, breathing community because it's made up of living, breathing people. But there's also a discernible structure to it. There's a general awareness of who's part of it and who isn't. A church is not like nailing jello to the wall. There is structure there. And that part at the end about binding and loosing in verses 15 through 20, it's very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 16 when he talks about the special role that Peter will play in the church getting off the ground. In both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus uses the word church, which he doesn't use very much, and he talks about binding and loosing, which he doesn't do very much. So clearly these passages go together somehow. Perhaps it's the fact that there's got to be some sort of structure. There's got to be some form of authority within a church. There's got to be accountability. There's got to be leadership. There's got to be binding and loosing. Perhaps that's what Jesus is getting at. But another New Testament passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says there, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. I always feel the need to defend this guy whenever I read this passage. In a way, I'm not totally defending him. When you read the passage, you hear that and you think, oh my gosh, he has his father's wife? Is that his mom? Whoa. Well, that's not what's happening here. This is likely his stepmom. His dad has married someone much younger who's very close to his age. I'm just saying. Let's not paint the guy to be a complete weirdo. So, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus. I think that phrase is interesting, because Jesus said in Matthew 18, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And Paul says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jump down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul is addressing this extreme and public case of sin within the church at Corinth. He has reminded the believers there of the faith that they hold. He's reminded them of the identity they've been given by God's grace. 
But then he goes on to argue that some actions simply cannot be reconciled with that new identity. Paul is establishing clear boundaries that must be respected for a church to be a church. And if those boundaries aren't respected by its members, the reputation that a church should have, holy, set apart, the called out ones, that reputation will be dragged through the mud. And the church will lose its credibility and lose its distinctiveness with those outside. But then Paul makes another important point in verses 9 through 13. He argues that being part of the church in Corinth doesn't mean that those believers should completely isolate themselves from anyone who's not like them, from anyone who's guilty of sin, heading for the hills all in the name of purity and bunker mentality. Paul argues that if that were even possible, which it's not, it would be foolish. In other words, we don't flee from those outside of the church because we're scared that they'll taint us with their sin. But within the church, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, we do hold each other accountable. We do encourage each other. We do challenge each other for what we say and do. We spur each other on to look more and more like Christ. Because the church's reputation is on the line. And that must be taken seriously. Now again, in this extreme case of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul commands the believers there to formally remove the man when they meet together. Now I thoroughly believe that Back then, and also today, that dirty word, excommunication, should be the last resort for a member of the church who refuses to repent of clear-cut and public sin. But if it ever came to that, we would do well to remember that the ultimate goal, even with a drastic measure like this, the ultimate goal is always repentance reconciliation, and restoration to the community. Paul doesn't command the church to remove this man from among them simply because he is forever beyond redemption. They're to do this that he might be saved in the day of the Lord. But then there's one more passage in 1 Corinthians that's worth talking about. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Paul goes on there. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Then jump down to verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, even though the word member here is used differently than the way we're using it, this passage can still be helpful. Paul compares the church to a human body, where all the various body parts have a necessary role to play. When the body is fully put together, each individual part fulfills its purpose and fulfills its potential 
and the collective body functions best. That wouldn't be the case if each body part was thrown around randomly, trying to do something productive on its own. And of course, there's that beautiful imagery in verse 26, that members in the church weep together and rejoice together through the ups and downs of life and the ups and downs of discipleship. It sounds like the kind of family that you'd really want to be a part of, doesn't it? That's because it is. It is a covenanted community of believers, the called out ones. Now, I truly believe that committed membership within a healthy and God-honoring church can be a glorious and life-giving gift to an individual believer. One of the people who wrote most movingly and eloquently on this is German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, It is true, of course, that this unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual, talking about a church community, is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Bonhoeffer experienced that himself when he was thrown into a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Christian community was robbed from him, so he knows what he's talking about. Therefore, let him who has the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the question is often asked, Can you be a Christian and not be part of a God-honoring church? And my answer is this. Of course you can, but why would you want to be? If you have the opportunity to be a member of a good church, to be part of a glorifying, covenanted community of believers, but simply choose not to, I would never suggest that you aren't saved. Nowhere close. But I would argue that you are missing out on an incredible gift of God's grace. You're missing out on so many of the gifts of committed Christian community. You're missing the fellowship, the accountability, the love, the service, the encouragement, the shepherding, and the teaching. And when you become a member of a church, you commit to do these things for your fellow believers through thick and thin. And you benefit when they do them for you. Now last week we talked about how our church's elders are very specifically called to shepherd God's flock. Well, you may have heard me say this before, especially if you've attended membership lunches. But membership is your way of formally, publicly, and voluntarily asking us to be your shepherds. You are formally, publicly, and voluntarily expressing your desire to be a part of this flock. And when you become a member, the church is formally, publicly, and voluntarily welcoming in you as part of the family. 
And membership is especially beneficial for our elders because it helps us all know where our relationship stands. It tells us who we have a special responsibility to care for. And it assures you of our commitment to do just that. Now back to our question earlier. How is church membership different from membership at the gym or a biker gang or any other club or association that we might mention? Well, in those places, more than anything, we're there to consume. If the exercise equipment at Planet Fitness gets outdated, you leave. If too many people don't wipe their sweat off the seat when they're done working out, you leave. If it gets too crowded, you leave. As soon as we're not satisfied, we can cut bait and get out of Dodge. When we're only there to consume, when we're only there to ask what's in it for me, then the second something goes wrong, then we flee. As soon as we're not satisfied, we're gone. There's some commitment there, but really it's only hanging on by a thread. But in the church, we are not primarily consumers. The church is not just another commodity that we consume. It's not just another social club or interest group that we may want to join someday. The church is not just another hobby that we can take or leave when we see fit. The church is God's gift to us, not the other way around. And God has called us to committed Christian community. You know, I sometimes hear people say things like, you know, I can worship God better out in the woods by myself on Sunday morning. Or I can worship God better on the deck with my Bible or in my car listening to worship music. You name it. And I don't deny that. Those things may be beneficial. Those things may be helpful. And by all means, do those things. But they're not the church. And they can't replace a covenanted community of believers. Now, can churches practice membership and practice community poorly? Of course they can. There are plenty of stories of churches using the practice of membership to harass, abuse, and bully people as soon as they slip up in the tiniest way. But that goes back to what we talked about last week. If you don't trust the leaders of a church not to do those things, then you probably shouldn't be a member there. And if you've experienced that yourself, if you've been abused or harassed or bullied by a church, the first thing I would say is, I'm sorry. But the second thing I would say is this. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't do it perfectly. But I can tell you that we take membership seriously here at Prairie View. Our elders have spent a lot of time, especially over the last few years, talking about membership more, thinking about how we can practice it in a more God-honoring way, and working hard to shepherd our flock in a more faithful and Christ-like manner. Now, will there be times when the church that you've committed to will let you down? Yes. Will there be times when you're tempted to leave? Yes. And sometimes there are good reasons to leave. But even saying all of that, I'd still ask you to give this church 
or any other good church a chance. Because when it's practiced well, church membership can be glorifying to God, helpful to your fellow believers, and beneficial for you. And we'd love the opportunity to prove it. Now as we close, I'd like to read Psalm 133, verse 1. It's the passage on the front of your bulletin. David says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Indeed. And I pray that would happen in this church, in every church. You know, the church is the primary place where the good news of the gospel is proclaimed with words and lived out through actions. God established the church. Christ died for the church. And the Spirit is active within the church. At its best, a church is the place where Christians most regularly preach, sing, give, baptize, and take communion. At its best, the church is the place with leaders who love us and shepherd us through thick and thin. The church, both local and across the ages and across the world, is a wonderful gift of God. And if that's true, if Christ died for the church, why wouldn't you want to be a part of it? I pray that you would. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people. We have a responsibility as believers to love every single person, every single neighbor, every single coworker, to serve those people that we meet, regardless of who they are or where they're from or how we've met them or how well we know them. But, Father, we have a unique and special responsibility and privilege to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I pray that we would be a church that cares for its members, where we love each other, we pray for each other, we lift each other up when the world beats us down, that we would encourage each other and teach each other when we have questions and doubts and and fears. And Father, I pray that this would be the kind of church that people want to be members of, that the community that we have here, the gospel that we preach, the love that we show for each other would just be incredibly attractive to a world that often doesn't know what love looks like, often doesn't know what it means to be a part of a deep-rooted community. And I pray that those people who are not part of this church or who are kind of on the fringes or maybe think the church is just something you take or leave, I pray that those people would be committed to a church, even if it's not this one. And I pray that this church and every other church out there would practice membership in a way that honors you, in a way that pleases you, in a way that actually helps people rather than burdening them. And so, Father, I pray for these people. I pray for this church. I pray that every single person who's a member here, every person who calls this church home, would hear the gospel regularly and know the gospel and preach the gospel to all who they meet. And I pray that this church, formally, together as a community, that we would preach the gospel, not just with our words, but with our actions. Thank you for Christ, who has called us together in this community. 
We love you. We praise you. We're thankful that he died, and we're thankful that he rose. We ask this all in his name.